So chapter 22 is toxicologic emergencies. So introduction, poisoning may be accidental or it can be intentional. It can be used to try to kill somebody or it can be used probably more uh, likely used to kill themselves, suicides. Many calls to poison control centers involve kiddos. And the vast majority of the accidental poisonings that we deal with is in the pediatric population. Calling a poison control center is a resource that we can access. And there are special problems associated with drug and alcohol emergencies. So poisons and poison. A poison is any substance that impairs health or causes death by its chemicals. It's a very broad term that's going to cover a lot of substances. Again, most poisonings are going to be accidental, and a lot of times they do involve young children. They don't know any better. They're very inquisitive, curious. They accidentally get into something, and those that have been around kiddos know kids like to put everything they find in their mouths. Other causes of poisoning include suicide and homicide as well. <clears throat> Toxicology is the study of toxins, antidotes, and the effects of toxins on the body. And overdoses is a type of poison, whether it be accidental or uh Intentional, if they overdose on a medication or drug, it's considered a poison. So routes of exposure. How can patients be exposed to this substance that they that poison them? There are four routes. That is, ingestion is going to be the most common, which is swallowed. Inhalation, patient breathes in the toxic substance or toxic fumes. Injection. Injected into the body by penetration. Heroin, for example, is probably a very common drug that is injected into the skin. And absorption through contact with the skin or the mucous membranes. So ingestion, again, by far going to be the most common route of exposure to a toxin. In this case, kiddos drinking kerosene from kerosene lamp. Inhalation, patient is huffing paint, it looks like, or they can huff any chemical. In this case, they're huffing paint. Carbon monoxide include, is included in this as well as an inhaled poison. Injection, shooting up, probably uh, heroin, sorry, and absorption. So it doesn't enter the body. Uh, the only or how it enters the body is it makes contact with the skin and it absorbs through that skin into the capillaries and then moves into the circulatory system. Dry line is probably the most common drug or toxin that we talk about <clears throat> that's absorbed. So general management of the poison patient. Signs and symptoms depend on the specific poison and route how it enters the body. We always need to be prepared for patient deterioration in a suspected poison. Depending upon that route, it may take some time before that poison gets circulated throughout the body. So they may be pretty much completely asymptomatic when we get on scene, but throughout transport, the longer they go, the more time that that 
toxin has had to circulate, now they start getting critical quickly. Monitor frequently the patient's mental status, airway, and breathing throughout transport or while we're with the patient. Very important right here. Most care for poisoning patients is going to be nothing but supportive measures. There's not much we're going to be able to do for them. We're going to maintain their ABCs, any other signs and symptoms they may be presenting with, and we're going to transport them to an appropriate facility. Again, ABCs, our primary assessment, is going to be the most important. So make sure that we're aggressive with that airway, that breathing, oxygenation, circulation. Monitor mental status, be prepared for vomiting. And again, frequent reassessments because again, they may be completely fine one minute and then start deteriorating very rapidly the next. So an antidote, there are few antidotes that are available. For us, treatment is going to be geared towards limiting or preventing the absorption of the poison and treating signs and symptoms. There are antidotes out there for some drugs. Most drugs, though, do not have an antidote. On, in EMS, we only basically carry one antidote, and that's Narcan for opiates. Other drugs, if they have an antidote, we're probably not carrying that on our truck. And again, Narcan or naloxone is a common antidote used by EMS to reverse opiate overdose. Most basics, most services do allow basics to give Narcan intranasally. And again, Narcan is getting so popular, I think in a lot of areas, probably even Texas, it can be sold over the counter without even a prescription. So we're going to go through the different routes. So ingested poisons. It's emptying of the stomach and absorption in the small intestines, and that varies. So we swallow a substance, like a overdose on medication, for example. It's gonna it has to work its way through our stomach and move into that small intestine before we're going to start seeing the effects. The small intestine is going to absorb that medication. So the speed that that's going to occur can vary. We always determine when the substance was ingested as the substance normally stays in the stomach for a period of time before entering the intestines. So again, we want to know how long ago did the patient take whatever it was they took, got into it. Now, other items, if it is like an acid or caustic substance, it may have burned through the stomach or the esophagus and so forth. In this case, the absorption into the small intestine, we're primarily talking about things like medications or something that's not eating a hole in them as they swallow it. So commonly ingested substances, probably the most common is going to be prescription medications. Again, accidental overdoses, intentional overdoses, accidentally taking somebody else's medication, kiddos getting into mom or dad's pills, over-the-counter medications as well. Tylenol, for some reason, is a very common drug younger patients especially try to kill themselves with. That's a terrible effing way to go. Dying of liver failure does not sound fun. Illegal drugs, household products, cleaning agents. Foods can be spoiled foods or underprepared foods, insecticides, petroleum products, or eating harmful plants as well. 
common accidental ingestions, medication misuse due to confusion or not understanding the, the directions. Uh, grandma takes blood pressure medicine in the morning. She took it this morning, forgot she took it, so she doubled up on her blood pressure medication. Or the medication says to take it two, two times a day uh, or four times a day every two hours or something, and they get the directions as backwards because they don't understand. Medications taken with alcohol. There are certain medications that should not be taken with alcohol because they can have that synergistic effect or compounding effect and totally make them go unresponsive or have a very undesirable effect. Storing poisons in a drink container. Dad's working on his lawnmower and has to drain the gas. So he puts it into a styrofoam cup or a solo cup or something. Young kid walks by thinking that dad is drinking something, so he reaches down there and drinks it before dad realizes what happened. Or keeping poisons in the reach of children as well. Poisoning is the number one cause of accidental death among kiddos. So again, this is something that we need to be aware of. A lot of poisonings that we run on involves kiddos. Again, a lot of people store poisons or substances under their sink. Kids can reach it easily, get into it, and then swallow it. So our assessment-based approach for ingested poison. We're going to start with our scene size up, look for clues such as containers, pill bottles, solvents, etc. If we are suspecting suicide, look around the scene for a possible suicide note. We do not enter a potential suicide scene without law enforcement clearing the scene <clears throat> first. That's if we're getting full information and we are told by dispatch what's going on. Identify the number of patients. We may have multiple patients complaining of the same signs and symptoms. For ingested poisoning, that could be an indication that they all ate the same thing. They're probably all suffering from food poisoning. <clears throat> Primary assessment, check mental status, ABCs. Oxygen, if indicated to do so, based on presentation of two sats. Support ventilations, if indicated, if the patient's not breathing adequately on their own. Suction, as needed to clear the airway. Consider the need for ALS backup. If we think we're going to need ALS, request them early on. History. Try to get a history from the patient. Again, if they are having altered mental status, this may be very difficult to determine, see if bystanders, family knows. Things that we need to ask, well, what did the patient take? If it's relevant, they you taking medication, well, did you take alcohol with the medication? And again, when? When did you take that substance or when was that substance ingested? Over what time period did the ingestion occur? Did they take, if it's suicide or suicidal ideations attempt, did they take a handful of medications all at one time or did they kind of space it out? Have they been taking pain medication just sooner than what the prescription allotted for, et cetera? How much was taken is going to be important as well. How many, med how many pills did the patient take? If it cannot be determined, Assume that the patient took all of the contents of the container or all of the missing contents. So patients say they took a handful of 
medication, but don't know exactly how much. Here's the pill bottle. We look at the pill bottle, the pill bottle is empty. So we're going to look, all pill bottles have to list the quantity that was in the pill bottle when it was filled. So we look at the pill bottle, quantity was 30, there's none, there's none left in the bottle, so we're going to assume the patient took all 30. Does the patient have a psychiatric history? Again, we start thinking about, was this a suicide attempt? Does the patient have an underlying medical history, addiction, chronic drug use? We need to ask or estimate patient's weight. The larger the patient is, in most cases, the more dosing that is going to be required to have that similar effect. So a 300-pound guy taking a handful of pills may not be as serious as a 110-pound female taking the same amount of pills. It may affect them differently. If we don't know exactly what the patient took, or we think the patient may not be totally truthful with us, what medications or drugs are available that the patient may have had access to as well. During our physical exam, check areas of complaint. If they're saying they're having nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, again, go ahead and assess those items. Areas, if the patient is completely unresponsive, perform a complete secondary assessment, a head to toe, checking for abnormalities. There may be potential trauma involved as well, suicide. They may have taken a handful of medications and also try to slice their own wrists or et cetera. Full set of vital signs on the patient as well. Signs and symptoms, things that we may look about, ask about, has there been a history of ingestion? Did the patient state they swallowed something or did the family state they think the patient might have swallowed something? You may see swelling of the mucous membranes of the mouth. We may or may not, depending on what the substance was they swallowed. If it was irritating, like an acid, alkali, something along those lines, we may see swelling immediately after swallowing to the face, the lips, etc. Nausea, vomiting. Yeah, that's one body, way your body's going to try to get rid of something toxic is it gets in the stomach, stomach doesn't like it, knows it's bad, it's going to throw it up. Diarrhea, again, may have altered mental status as well. Abdominal pain and tenderness maybe is pretty common. May have burns or stains around the mouth, pain in the mouth or throat. Again, very dependent on what the patient swallowed. Unusual breath or body odors, we may smell what the patient swallowed or ingested. Can lead to respiratory distress, especially if they aspirated some of it. Again, depending on what it is, we may start seeing changes in vital signs, including the heart rate. <clears throat> so this is a picture of a kiddo. Is discoloration of burns around the mouth are signs of a possible poison. So it looks like the patient swallowed something. It ran out of their mouth and down the side of their face. So you can already seeing it starting to burn that area. So if it's doing that to that outer layer of skin, what do you think it's doing to the inside of that mouth and the esophagus that's not as protected as the outside of that, that the face is? Probably causing significant internal damage to the kiddo. Other sign symptoms, again, changes in vital signs, alterations in blood pressure, depending on what the toxin is, we may see changes in pupil status. Warm, dry, cool, moist skin, again, kind of very dependent on what the substance is. 
altered mental status can lead to comas, even possibly seizures as well. Care for ingested poisoning. Again, ABCs are going to be priority. Make sure that we're doing what we can to protect that airway, protect from aspiration. If a patient's not breathing adequately on their own, assist ventilations. Maintain oxygenation, depending on complaint, O2 sats, et cetera. The patient may or may not need oxygen. Do what we can to prevent further injury. If this was a suicide attempt, just be aware that if he's that or he or she is that desperate to kill themselves, they may even try something while they're in front of us and transport the patient immediately. Get them to the hospital. Again, treatment's primarily going to be supportive. Get them to the hospital where they can do more detailed, in-depth treatment. Consult medical direction or poison control center. Activated charcoal may be ordered. So we do have some resources. We can call med control, tell the doc, hey, we're coming in with the patient, took this much, this long ago. Is there anything you want us to do different? We can also call poison control center. We can reach those 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. It's important to know that in Texas, poison control centers cannot give us medical direction. They can recommend things to us, but then we would have to get on the radio and call the hospital, talk to the doctor, say, hey, poison control wants to, to give this patient a cup of milk. Do we have your orders to give the patient a cup of milk? Or they recommend activated charcoal. Can we give the patient activated charcoal? Should try to bring the substance with us to the hospital. The container, pill bottle, whatever the case may be, in the lab, they may want to look at it and they may want to do tests on it. If anything, they will look at the ingredients on it as well. Reassess frequently and consider activated charcoal if allowed by protocols. Every protocol that I've ever seen that deals with activated charcoal is we call med control first before we can give it. Because if there is an antidote to that ingested medication, activated charcoal will prevent the antidote from working as well. It will bind to the antidote. So typically it does require us to contact med control. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and we'll come back right here. So it is 9.36. So again, one of the drugs that we could potentially give for ingested poisons is activated charcoal. May occasionally be used uh, ingestion for ingestion of certain substances. And how it works is that it absorbs certain toxins, preventing them from being absorbed in the body. So what activated charcoal basically does, it basically envelops or wraps around that ingested poison to prevent it from getting absorbed through the small intestine. However, there is no actual evidence out there that it does improve outcomes. And there is also a risk of aspiration in taking it as well. And they vomit while they're taking activated charcoal and it does taste gross, can induce vomiting accidentally, and they aspirate some of it, it's going to cause some pretty bad damage to the lungs. Most activated charcoal does contain some type of laxative to help the patient pass the activated charcoal. Sorbitol is the most common. And the standard dose for activated charcoal is 50 grams. 
which is the entire bottle. Again, we have to try to give this before that, before it works best, giving it before the medication or that toxin reaches the small intestine. So it needs to be given within one, within one hour of ingestion. So if they took or ingested it two to three hours ago, activated charcoal probably will not be indicated. And again, we're giving a oral medication that the patient has to swallow. So the patient must be able must be awake, able to maintain their own airway, and able to follow instructions before we could give them that activated charcoal. Several brands and forms of activated charcoal are available. Typically what most activated charcoal looks like. The procedure to give it, again, we have to assure we have medical direction approval. Again, in this region, you do have to have online orders in order to give activated charcoal. Before we give it, we do need to shake the container or mix up the ingredients. It is a suspension. So if it is sitting there for a prolonged period of time, the drug and the, 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 the ingredients of that drug are going to separate. If possible, pour it in a cup, let the patient drink, drink it from a straw, less likely to cause vomiting, I guess. And just like with any other medication, we report the time that it was given, the dosage that we gave to the patient, and their response to the drug. And again, can induce vomiting just solely based on the taste of it being so gross. So make sure we are prepared in case the patient does vomit. Our reassessment for ingested poisonings, we're going to reassess every five minutes. Again, constant, closely monitoring that LOC because it can take time, prepare for emesis, and again, consider ALS support if we think it's going to be indicated. Moving on to inhaled poisonings. <clears throat> Thousands of people die yearly from inhaling a poisonous vapor or fume, and many poisonings from inhalation occur as a result of fire. Patients are trapped inside that burning house. They, a lot of those patients actually die from carbon monoxide poisoning, not so much the heat or flames. These poisons rapidly absorb into the body. Patient is inhaling that medication into their lungs. It's going to have a quicker route to get into the circulatory system, so it's a lot faster acting in many cases than ingested poisonings. And the longer the patient is exposed to the substance, the worse their prognosis is going to be. So that's something that we want to try to determine. If they were in the burning house, well, how long were they in that burning environment? Common inhaled poisons, ammonia, chlorine gas, sulfur dioxide, other industrial gases. Carbon monoxide is, again, is going to probably be the most common type of inhaled poison we will come across. You can even breathe in too much carbon dioxide as well. Fumes from liquid chemicals and sprays, or solvents used in dry cleaning, degreasing agents, fire extinguishers can all be toxic if it breathed in as well. Intentional inhalation of certain substances such as propellants in order to get a high 
we call that or is referred to as huffing. So huffing can result in the displacement of oxygen from the lungs and can have toxic effects and damage the alveoli as well. So one concern is that they're breathing in that spray paint and breathing nothing in but that spray paint and they're not getting any oxygen in. So that spray paint is displacing all the oxygen. Not only that, uh, whatever they're breathing in can also cause damage to the alveoli, which in turn is going to reduce gas exchange as well. <clears throat> Common abused inhalants include glue, paints, freon, gas propellants, nitrous oxide, and even gasoline vapors. So our assessment-based approach for inhaled poisons. Start with our scene size up, paying very close attention to scene safety. Do not enter an unsafe scene. They inhaled whatever that substance was. That substance may still be in the air. So we don't want to get exposed to that as well. On scene, beware of odors, fumes, or vapors, vapor clouds that may indicate that something toxic is going on. But also remember that you may be getting exposed to a substance like carbon monoxide and not even know it. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless, and tasteless gas. Determine the number of patients, especially for just carbon monoxide leaks inside a residence. That's one way that we kind of start suspecting that is if we have multiple patients all start complaining of similar signs and symptoms at the same, roughly the same time with no real apparent cause, and you start thinking, oh, that could be possible carbon monoxide leaking into the house. Primary assessment, evaluate LOCs. LOC, go through our ABCs. If the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, we're immediately gonna start bagging the patient with the BBM. If they are breathing adequately on their own, all patients that are suffering from an inhaled poisoning are going to get placed on high-flow O2 non-rebreather 15 liters per minute, regardless of what the O2 sat readings state. So we don't care what O2 stat, O2, O2 sats state. If they are suffering from an inhaled poison, they get placed on high-flow O2 non-rebreather 15 liters per minute, period. Secondary assessment, determine the substance that, that was inhaled if possible, gather from the patient or the bystander. Again, there could be a possibility of trauma, so try to roll out trauma. Try to determine the duration the patient was exposed to that substance. Was there any type of treatments that were provided to the patient prior to our arrival as well? <clears throat> Additional questions asked, are there any suggestions that the patient was intentionally inhaling something in order to, or trying to kill themselves? Was the exposure in the open or confined space? Open space, at least they possibly could be getting some oxygen. If it was in a confined space like a burning building, then it, all the oxygen was likely displaced from that building. And again, length. How long would we estimate that the patient was exposed to whatever that substance was? 
physical exam, look for, if again, especially for like burning buildings, uh, make sure that we're doing a real good assessment of that airway, looking for singe, soot, discolorization, burns, et cetera. Patient breathing in superheated gases can cause airway burns. If that airway burn is occur occurring, we have to worry about airway swelling. And again, just like anaphylactic reaction, that swelling of the airway can be dramatic and severe enough to the point where it totally occludes that airway. If we ever su suspect a respiratory burn, it, we have to require paramedic backup immediately because the patient needs to be immediately intubated. So again, if we suspect an airway burn, regardless of how okay the patient looks at like right now, contact paramedic backup. Make sure we assess lung sounds. Again, that inhaled poisoning may be causing abnormal lung sounds, wheezing, crackles, rails, uh, ronchi, kind of anywhere. Can, we can have any type of lung sounds. If patient is unresponsive, go ahead and do a complete head-to-toe assessment on them. Signs and symptoms that the patient may present with, again, very dependent on what the substance was. Maybe complaining of dyspnea, shortness of breath chest pain or a burning sensation in the chest or throat. May have, be coughing heavily, may have strider, wheezing, crackles, hoarseness. When they're talking, their voice just sounds extremely hoarse. Copious secretions. And again, we may see or indications of a respiratory burn, oral, nasal, or pharyngeal burns. Again, signs and symptoms are going to be very dependent on what the substance was that they inhaled. Dizziness, headache, altered mental status, confusion, seizures, cyanosis, tachypnea, increased respiratory rate, can have nausea and vomiting. They were huffing, especially things like paint. You may see that paint or whatever the other substance is on their lips or face, on their hands. Again, soot in the mouth or nose or burned nasal hair indicates the possibility of a respiratory burn. Again, treatment for inhaled poison. First thing is we have to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. Don't be the hero. Don't rush into that burning building. Uh, if we know that they were in, it was an inhaled poisoning, treated like a hazardous material situation, stay back. If we can safely do so, we do remove the patient from the dangerous environment. If we can't do it, then allow the fire department to do it with their SCBAs. If the patient's conscious, we're going to put the patient in a position of comfort. If they're unresponsive, go ahead and put them in a supine position. In ABC's primary assessment, make sure the airway is open. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, ventilate the patient with the BBM. If they are breathing adequately, all patients get placed, inhaled poison patients get placed on a non-rebreather 15 liters per minute, regardless of what the pulse ox is showing. If it's safe to do so, try to bring containers, bottles, et cetera, with us to the hospital if they were huffing, et cetera. Again, Scene safety is going to be the most important aspect. Our safety is always number one. So protect yourself. Again, burning building. Have the trained rescuers remove the patient from the toxic environment. If there's any decon, they can decon them. Once the patient's clean and safe, then we can go up there or they can bring them to us and we start treating them. 
Again, high flow to non-herbal breather, 15 liters per minute for inhaled poisons, regardless of what the pulse ox shows. Reassessment every five minutes, monitor airway ventilations closely. And if we haven't done so previously, we can also request ALS backup if we think we're going to need it. Injected poisons. These poisons enter the body through a break in the skin. They include intentional injections of drugs and animal or insect bites and stings as well. The effects of that injected poisoning can be local or it can be systemic. In the case of drugs, it's probably going to be a systemic reaction. And the big concern with injected poisonings is if the patient from like insects, bites, stings, etc., those are typically benign unless the patient has an allergy to them where we have to worry about anaphylactic reaction like we just previously talked about. So our assessment-based approach for injected poisonings, seeing size up, again, seeing safety is gonna be a concern as well. Animals, insects, or snakes, make sure we're not gonna do anything that's gonna cause us to get bit or stung. Dangerous persons that are going around biting patients, we need to be careful of them as well. No discarded syringes or drug paraphernalia on scene. Again, that may give us indications of what the patient is doing or injected. Go through your primary assessment, AVCs, oxygenate as indicated by pulse ox. Again, the high flow O2 non-rebreather 15 liters per minute, regardless of O2 sats, is only for inhaled poisons. So now we're following back with injected poisonings or ingested poisons, we're falling back to kind of evaluating the patient as a whole and making that determination. So O2 sats at or above 94% for injected poisonings. Get your sample history. Other questions that we can ask. Does the patient have a history of drug abuse? If it was a bite or a sting, is the patient allergic to bites or stings? How much time has elapsed since the injection? How long ago did they do the drugs? Bites or stings, what type of animal or insect was it that you were bit or stung by? Does the patient know? Physical exam, make sure that we're looking at the injection site. Bee stings, et cetera, bites, look at it for the injections. They were shooting up heroin, for example. Make sure that we're looking at the injected site. If snake bite, cleanse the wound, and we're going to mark the edges of the swelling, and we're going to keep an eye on that swelling to see if the swelling is getting larger. And we'll talk more about this in environmental emergencies as well. If it was a bee sting, again, we're checking this the area where the patient was stung at, if the stinger is still in place, we're going to remove the stinger. When we remove stingers, we don't pinch and grab, we don't use tweezers or hemostats because that denim sac is still probably going to be attached to the stinger. And if we squeeze it, we're just injecting the rest of that venom into the patient's body. So the best way to remove a stinger from a bee is to use like your, it's not showing up, but use your name badge and you're going to, to scrape the stinger off. 
Again, examine the affected body parts wherever the patient has a complaint at. Make sure that we're examining that complaint. Full set of vital signs as well. Signs and symptoms that we may see. They may have weakness, lethargy. Again, it's going to be very dependent on what they were injecting. Dizziness. May have chills and fever. Nausea and vomiting. If it was a drug that they were trying to get high with, they're probably going to have a euphoric feeling as well, or they may be completely unresponsive and barely breathing as well. And that's what opiates do. It causes decreased LOC and causes the respirations to slow. May have a high or low blood pressure, may have pupillary changes as well. If it is an opiate or a narcotic, like heroin, the pupils are normally going to be pinpoint, very, very tiny. They're injecting the medication or drugs. We may see track marks, needle track marks on their arms from previous injections. Pain or swelling at the injected site. May have a complaint of dyspnea, skin color changes. And kind of depending on what it is, they may even have possible paralysis as well. So our care, it's a bite or sting. Again, our priority is going to be protecting ourselves. Monitor the ABCs. Maintain oxygenation at or above 94%. Patients not breathing adequately on their own. We're going to ventilate the patient with the BVM. Be alert for vomiting. Bring the container with us to the hospital if we can. So if it's a heroin and there's still extra heroin on scene, we're probably not going to be able to bring that with us to the hospital. That will be evidence. Law enforcement will take control of that. If it's a bite or sting, try to identify the animal but do not bring the animal with you to the hospital, especially for a snake bite. We're not going to kill the rattle, rattlesnake and take it with us to the hospital. Bites and stings, again, are discussed further in Chapter 24. I think we will get to that on Wednesday. Um, yeah, we'll go over more of these, this on Wednesday. Reassessment, monitor frequently. If drugs, monitor respirations closely. If they've been injecting, especially opiates like heroin, morphine, fentanyl, what's going to kill the patient probably quicker than anything is their respirations are going to be inadequate. They're going to stop breathing. So if we do suspect opiates, that's one of the main things that we're looking at is looking at their breathing and contact ALS if indicated as well. Absorbed poisons. They enter the body through the skin or the mucous membranes. They can cause skin and mucous membrane irritation or burns, or they may not and can still get absorbed and not see any external signs of the where it was absorbed at. Risk of exposure increases daily as new chemicals are being developed. And these poisons can cause both. They can cause a localized reaction where they're burning the skin or irritating the skin. And as they work their way into the capillaries and get, then get circulated, they can also cause a systemic reaction throughout the entire body as well.
Scene size up, sure safety, take appropriate precautions. Call for special help if indicated, especially mainly if decontamination is going to be needed. Patient is covered in a large amounts of this chemical where we're not really sure how to clean the patient from this chemical. Contact the fire department. They can go through decon. Determine the number of patients. Once we get a patient side, we start a primary assessment, focusing on ABCs and oxygenation as indicated based on patient present, uh, presentation, pulse ox readings, history and physical. Try to determine the substance if we can. Ask questions. If, they, if it was at, a say, an industrial site, they should know what type of chemicals they were working with. Their bystanders should know. Coworkers should know what they were working with. Complete physical exam, looking for those indications of uh, irritation or burns that where it could have been absorbed at. Again, depending on what the substance is, the patient is likely going to have to be decontaminated before we start our assessment. And again, full set of bottle signs during our secondary assessment as well. <clears throat> Some indications that may have liquid or powder that's still left on the skin. Assessing the skin, we may know burning, redness, burns, itching sensation or irritation to the site, redness or swelling, signs and symptoms of contact with a poisonous plant as well, poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, whatever the case may be. May have fluid-filled oozing blisters, swelling pain rash, Itching, burning sensation, swelling, causing major irritation. They may have possible pain to that area as well. Again, depending on what the substance is, can also produce rashes on the body as well. Care for absorbed poisons. Protect yourself with proper PPE, including proper gloves. Your nitrile gloves may not be enough protection, depending on what the substance is. Again, it's just something that we need to think of and be aware of. ABCs, maintain airway, oxygen levels at or above 94%. Positive pressure ventilations, if indicated to do so. If it was a dry chemical and there's still chemical on the patient's skin, we're going to have to decontaminate it. If it's safe for us to do so, first thing that we're going to do is dry or is brush off any dry chemicals and solid. Try to get as much of the powder off of their skin before we start irrigating it. And we may need to irrigate afterwards with copious amounts of water or saline spawn too. If it's a liquid, irrigate with clean water for at least 20 minutes. If something got into their eyes, we're going to irrigate with clean water or normal saline for at least 20 minutes. But we're not going to do the whole decon on scene. We're not going to delay transport trying to flush the eyes out for 20 minutes. We're going to start flushing the eyes. We can continue to flush those eyes throughout transport to the hospital. So if it's in the eyes, we have to flush it for at least 20 minutes. So in this case, the patient got exposed to dry lime. Again, that's probably the most commonly used example of a absorbed toxin. So again, when we're getting ready to 
clean the patient, decontaminate it, first thing we're going to do is brush off as much as that chemical as we can, and then we can irrigate it with copious amounts of water. Irrigate chemical burns to the eyes with clean water for at least 20 minutes. And we'll talk a little bit more about this once we get into eye trauma. It's very important, though, if we're irrigating the eyes, if we're doing only one eye, which it looks like it is in this case, when we're flushing the eye out, we want to flush from medial aspect lateral. So from the bridge of the nose outward. We don't want to flush outward going in because we could flush whatever that chemical is into their uninjured eye. So flushing the eyes, we always start from the nose, do it flush out laterally to the side. Reassessment, monitor closely. Consider ALS for pain management or respiratory control if indicated. Rapid transport. And notify the receiving facility early on what we're bringing to them. Even though they were decontaminated on scene by fire department, chances are they're probably going to get decontaminated again at the hospitals before they're let into the hospital just to assure they're not getting that toxin into the hospital. Both UMC and Covenant do have decon showers right at their entrance. I've taken patients through the UMC one more than I have the Covenant one. The UMC one doesn't really have any hot water. So if you ever get exposed to something, they're going to strip you naked and a nurse is going to be in there showering you with cold water. It was not pleasant for the patient that, I, that we did that with. So specific types of poisoning. So we kind of talked about generic treatment for these poisonings. Now we're going to kind of get into more specifics. And this, believe it or not, is where the chapter gets a little tedious in my mind. Like it hasn't already been, but it gets even more so coming up. <clears throat> So food poisoning. Illness can result from bacteria in the food or from the toxins released by that bacteria. Food poisoning is increasing in incidences. And a common source of food poisoning is seafood, chicken, so forth, meat, uh, beef, etc. can all have caused food poisoning. Common sources of food poisonings include eggs, chicken with salmonella probably being the most common, ready-to-eat foods, untreated water, unpasteurized milk, and fish, types of food poisoning, salmonella, again, contaminated water or food or undercooked food, again, chicken and eggs is typically where we see salmonella. Campylobacters, contaminated poultry, milk, water, E. coli, severe GI poisoning from contaminated or undercooked foods, contaminated water. Seems like we're frequently hearing about E. coli outbreaks, and it's typically with things like contaminated fruits or vegetables, lettuce. There was a recall on a bunch of lettuce not too long ago because it contained E. coli. Vegetables can kill you. Staphylococcus aurorus from unhygienic food prep associated with food served cold. So signs and symptoms of food poisoning. 
again, kind of just going to be dependent on what type of substance it is, what type of poisoning, how much of that contaminated food that they ate, etc. You can have fever. Certain food poisonings can actually cause blood disorders in the patient, bleeding, may see blood in their stool, abdominal cramping, muscle cramps, even cause paralysis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and may have loud or frequent bowel sounds if we listen to bowel sounds with the stethoscope. We don't listen to bowel sounds very routinely in a pre-hospital setting. Most of the time, food poisoning is going to present with GI issues. So nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, possibly blood in their stool, blood in their diarrhea. That's all pretty common with uh, food poisoning. So our care for food poisoning. Treatment-wise, again, is going to be basically supportive. We're going to treat it with the general guidelines that we've already talked about for ingested poisons. Primary assessment, ABCs, O2 sats at or above 94%, positive pressure ventilations if indicated, constantly reassess and transport the patient to the hospital again. And you're going to see that theme. Primarily going to be supportive measures are all we're going to be able to do for most food poisons. A lot of food poisoning, they're just going to have to kind of, hospitals is going to be supportive. They're going to start IVs, give them anti-nausea medicine, give them fluid to replace the fluid that they're losing. Other than that, patients probably just going to have to ride out the signs and symptoms. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide, abbreviated CO, is formed by incomplete combustion of certain fuels. And it's carbon monoxide poisoning is the leading cause of death from fires. Again, most people that die in, say, house fires do not die from the heat or the flames. They die from carbon monoxide poisoning long before the fire actually reaches them. Sources of carbon monoxide, furnaces, wood-burning fireplaces, heaters, automobile exhausts, barbecue grills, and again, house fires. So if you have gas appliances at your house, a residence, apartment, whatever the case may be, then there is a possibility of carbon monoxide exposure. And carbon monoxide is an odorless, tasteless, colorless, non-irritating gas, meaning you can be getting exposed to it and not even realize it until you get extremely symptomatic. That's why it's recommended for if you have gas appliances in your house, heater, oven, whatever the case may be, that you also have carbon monoxide detectors inside your house as well. <clears throat> Parking in the garage, leaving your car running, that can fill your house or garage with carbon monoxide. It's a common suicide attempt method as well. Signs and symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. First symptom that patients start getting symptomatic is they start complaining of a headache. It leads to tachypnea, nausea, vomiting, altered mental status. With carbon monoxide poisoning, we may get a normal or even a higher than normal reading for our pulse ox. Our pulse oxes cannot differentiate between oxygen molecules and carbon monoxide molecules. So even though we're getting 100% reading on our pulse ox, it's an inaccurate reading because, again, that pulse ox 
can't determine if it's binding to oxygen or carbon monoxide. And in the case of carbon monoxide poisoning, it's probably reading carbon monoxide, not oxygen. Care, evacuate the patients from the area of the source. Again, if they're in a burning building, we need to get them out of that burning building. The fire department needs to get them out of that burning building. Again, this is an inhaled poisoning. So they get placed on high flow two non-rebreather, 15 liters per minute, regardless of what that pulse ox is reading. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to ventilate the patient with the BVM. Transport the patient immediately to the hospital, preferably if they have the hospital has. Uh, hyperbaric chambers, that's the hospital we need to pick. Both UMC and Covenant do have a hyperbaric chamber availability. So those two are the ones we'll go to with carbon monoxide. Cyanide poison. This is also typically found in burning houses. Found in many forms, it can enter the body in a variety of ways. Cyanides found in items such as rodent poisons, silver polish, even fruit pits. Again, where we typically see cyanide poisoning, though, is in burning buildings. It is a byproduct of burning plastic, silks, other synthetic materials. And what cyanide does, it interferes with the use of oxygen at the cellular level. It prevents that oxygen from being used. So early signs and symptoms of cyanide poisoning, headache, confusion, agitation, combativeness, burning sensation in the mouth or throat, dyspnea, hypertension, bradycardia or tachycardia. And oftentimes patients that are exposed to cyanide complain of a smell of bitter almonds. Uh, they can smell bitter almonds. Cyanide can also be used in like terrorist attacks as well. Late signs and symptoms are those seen in large dose cyanide poisoning, seizures, coma, <clears throat> hypotension, pulmonary edema, the wet sounding lung sounds, crackles, rails, cardiac dysrhythmias, irregular pulses can lead to death, and it can also lead the patient to become acidic or drop their pH as well. Care for cyanide poisoning. Again, scene safety. Remove the patient from the source and the source from the patient. Open and maintain an airway. Again, oftentimes cyanide is inhaled. So high flow of tube, non-rebreather, regardless of pulse ox, if they're not breathing adequately, positive pressure ventilations. Rapid transport ALS backup. Again, nothing we can do for it other than supportive measures. Acids and alkalis. These are caustic substances are found in many household products. Acids have a low pH. They burn on contact and typically burn for one to two minutes. So if a patient ingested an acid, it causes immediate and severe pain upon contact. And if it's ingested, it causes burns to the mouth, oral pharynx, but normally stops burning after one or two minutes, thus kind of limiting the depth where that damage is going to be at. 
So again, they swallow it. It's going to have immediate irritation, burning all the way down. But again, after about one or two minutes, it's going to kind of neutralize and it's going to stop burning. Compare that to alkalis, on the other hand, they have a high pH. They too burn on contact, but the sensation may be delayed and, and it's going to last a lot longer than the one or two minutes. It can last for hours. So alkalis burn deeper than acids do. Also, if they're ingested, they tend to adhere to the oropharynx and esophagus, leading to deep, severe burns can cause perforation where it burns all the way through that esophagus as well, or the stomach. And perforate the stomach and or esophagus if it's ingested. So signs and symptoms of ingested alkali or acids, burns to the mouth, lips, face, dysphagia, difficulty speaking, hoarseness, strider, again, because of that chronic irritation, sudden irritation causing swelling, dyspnea, abdominal pain. If it did perforate the stomach or esophagus, the patient may be showing signs and symptoms of shock as well. Care for acids alkalis. Again, it's going to be pretty much supportive measures are all we're going to be able to do. Share the safety of self and others. Make sure we're in appropriate PPE. If they got that acid or alkali on their clothing, remove their clothing, decontaminate the patient with copious amounts of water. Again, supportive measures, airway, maintain breathing, O2 sats at or above 94%. Patients not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, ventilate the patient with the BVM. Other than that, consider ALS backup, rapid transport to the hospital. Again, supportive measures are about all we're going to be able to do. Hydrocarbons, substances that are produced from crude oil, coal, or plant sources. We find hydrocarbons in kerosene, lighter fluid, glue, cleaning agents, propellants, and other products. The toxicity of of the hydrocarbon, again, is going to, based on the concentration of what type of substance it actually was. Big risk of those, if it gets into their lung, if they aspirate a hydrocarbon like kerosene, it's going to do massive lung damage, tissue damage. Poisoning may occur by ingestion, inhalation, or even absorption as well. So signs symptoms of hydro hydrocarbon and poisoning. They have coughing, choking, crying, burns to the mouth or contact area. Dyspnea, wheezing, strider, again, especially if they've aspirated it, have that wheezing. Thechypnea, cyanosis, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Can cause the patient to have seizures as well. Coma, altered mental status, headache, dizziness, dull reflexes, slurred speech, and can also cause cardiac dysrhythmias as well. Anybody want to guess what the treatment is? Supportive measures. 
Remove the patient from the environment, decontaminate the patient if needed, open and maintain an airway, positive pressure ventilations if the patient is not breathing adequately, if the patient is breathing adequately, pulse oxide or above 94%. Other than that, rapid transport to the hospital. Methanol or wood alcohol. Substances found in some gasoline, antifreeze, canned fuels, and other sources. It is different than ethanol, but it may be drunk deliberately by alcoholics if they cannot get their hands on drinking alcohol. Ingestion, they swallow it, it's going to make their body become acidic. That's going to drop their pH. Signs symptoms can occur between 40 minutes all the way up to 72 hours after they ingested the methanol. Signs <clears throat> symptoms, altered mental status, can have seizures, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, blurred vision, dilated or sluggish pupils, changes in their vision can cause blindness as well. Dyspnea, trouble breathing, tachypnea, rapid breathing. Treatment for methanol poisoning, supportive measures. Airways, breathing, pulse ox, O2, supplement O2, rapid transport to the hospital. Isopropyl alcohol, this is rubbing alcohol, found in rubbing alcohol, household products. It's also used for cosmetics, disinfecting agents, cleaning agents as well. Can be, again, just like with methanol, maybe intentionally ingested by alcoholics who cannot get drinking alcohol. And just like methanol, it's more toxic than drinking alcohol. And if they drank rubbing alcohol, signs and symptoms typically begin within 30 minutes after ingestion. Signs and symptoms, well, if they're drinking rubbing alcohol, you can probably smell rubbing alcohol on their breath. It can cause respiratory depression, altered mental status, abdominal pain. It can be a little caustic. You may see bloody vomitus from the patient as well. And may be severe enough to where it is showing signs and symptoms of shock. Treatment, it's going to be supportive. Open and maintain airway, maintain oxygen sats at or above 94, positive pressure ventilations if needed. Other than that, rapid transport to the hospital. <clears throat> Ethylene glycol, this is antifreeze, found in automobile antifreezes, agents, deicers, detergent, and has a sweet taste to it may be ingested accidentally. Again, it's poured into a drinking cup, kind of storing it, and a kid wanders up, sees it, it's brightly colored, it smells sweet, so they think it's a drink and drink it. Or it can be done intentionally. Suicides, there's been a number of cases I've heard about where they're trying, they try to kill somebody else by slipping uh, ethylene glycol into a drink. Causes intoxication type appearance. They appear drunk after they ingest ethylene glycol. 
initially it's so technically ethylene glycol itself is not really toxic however it's when your body starts metabolizing that ethylene glycol it produces metabolites and it's the metabolites that are the ones that actually are harmful to the patient so again it's not really toxic until your body starts metabolizing the ethylene glycol it affects the central nervous system lungs heart blood vessels and kidneys signs and symptoms there's different stages first stage is neurological develops 30 minutes to 12 hours post ingestion and again they're just going to have an intoxicated appearance they're going to look drunk uncoordinated movement slurred speech altered uh, mental status it can also cause nausea and vomiting seizures and generates a headache as well Second stage is cardiopulmonary, 12 to 24 hours post-ingestion. Patients can present with dys dyspnea, tachypnea, cyanosis, pulmonary edema, crackles, rails, wet sounding lung sounds, and can lead to heart failure for the patient as well. Third stage is the renal stage. 24 to 72 hours post-ingestion, doing a lot of damage to the kidneys, so there is low to no production of urine. If there is some urine, they're going to have bloody urine, hematuria, and pain to the flank areas where those kidneys rest, kind of the sides of the body. Treatment is supportive measures just like everything else we've talked about so far. Supportive measures focusing in on the ABCs and oxygenation. Poisonous plants. Plants include poison ivy, poison sumac, poison oak, as well as other plants that cause contact dermatitis. So with poisonous plants, they're typically not life-threatening. Most result in only local tissue reaction, again, it's causing contact dermatitis. But monitor the patient, protect ABCs as indicated to do so. If need be, we can de decontaminate the patient, flush the skin to try to keep that oil uh, from getting transferred around. Try to deter the patient from scratching. Every time they scratch, they're just spreading that substance, that poison, over a greater area of their body. So try to prevent them from scratching. Again, what different types look like. Poison oak, poison ivy, and there's poison sumac. And again, what poisonous plants do is just they kind of secrete an oil that gets on their skin and it causes it local irritation to the skin or contact dermatitis. You can kind of see it's reddening, may even look kind of fluid-filled as well. This dude, I don't know what happened to him, but he got it all over his stomach. Treatment-wise, again, supportive measures. Don't let the patient scratch. Get to the hospital. Suicide bags, chemical suicide by toxic gas inhalations is becoming more and more popular. It's inhalation of helium or nitrogen concentrated in a bag over the head to cause suffocation. In these cases, scene safety is going to be critical. We need to evacuate the room, contact the fire department, 
they're likely going to be wearing SCBAs to come in there and to make the scene safe. If this is the case, patient suffering from this, we're going to treat the patient for toxic inhalation. High flow O2, supported measures, ABCs, rapid transport to the hospital is all we're going to be able to do. So again, we're starting to see suicide bags more and more. So what they do is they get just a plastic bag, get a helium tank, because helium is a lot easier to get than nitrogen. Get a helium tank, you can go to Walmart and buy that tank right there. Feed a tube up through the tap bag or through the tank into the bag, tape it all up and just fill that up with helium. It's non-painful. They kind of just drift away and then succumb. In this case, they did something inside the vehicle, poisoned themselves inside the vehicle, and they were nice enough to leave first responders a note so we didn't get exposed to it. So poison control centers. Centers are staffed by experts, is available 24 hours a day by a toll-free call. Staff can help advise on a treatment plan. We call them, we tell them, hey, you got a four-year-old kid, got into bleach uh, cleaning product. I need, is there something, is this something to worry about? Is there any type of treatment that we should be performing or that you would advise us to perform? What type of signs and symptoms should we expect to see, et cetera? What they're going to want to know from you, they're going to want to know the patient's age, weight, their overall condition, and the specifics of the poison. They want to know what it was they took, how long ago they took it, how much of it did they possibly take. They cannot provide medical direction in Texas. Again, we've talked about this previously. So if they say, hey, this patient needs activated charcoal, that's not an order. We then have to get on the radio with med control, tell them, hey, this is what poison control is advising us. Do we have orders to give the activated charcoal? So drug and alcohol emergencies. Significant medical problems are associated with drug overdoses and drug withdrawals. Problems include altered mental status, respiratory depression, Patients abusing drugs and alcohol can be unpredictable and violent as well. So when we're dealing with drug use, there are some terms that we need to know. So drug abuse is self-administration of a drug in a manner that is not in accord with approved medical or social patterns. So that may include not following the directions or the prescription that's given to you. Supposed to take pain medicine every six hours, you've been taking it every three hours. Technically, you are abusing that drug. Mixing drugs with alcohol that's not supposed to be mixed is technically drug abuse. Overdose is an emergency that involves poisoning by drugs or alcohol. And a withdrawal is a period of abstinence from the drug or alcohol to which the body has become accustomed. Your body is used to you drinking alcohol all the time. When you go a long period of time without drinking alcohol, your body's gonna go through withdrawal symptoms. So some different types of drugs. You have stimulants, you have amphetamines, cocaine, uh, sorry, ephedrine and methamphetamines. These are all 
uppers in the body. Causes increased alertness, elevated mood, loss of appetite, insomnia, increase in blood pressure, and an increase in heart rate. They can be dangerous. They can cause cardiac dysrhythmias, tachycardia, paranoia, hallucinations, agitation, violence, and seizures as well. Cannabis. Hashish, marijuana, THC, causes euphoria, decreased inhibitions, dry mouth, disorientation. Overdose on cannabis can cause fatigue, tremors, paranoia, and psychosis. And the degree of physical addiction is not known. So I've been in EMS for... 20, 18 years, something like that. My dad's been in it since I dinosaurs roamed the earth. Do you know how how many marijuana overdoses we've ran on? Zero. You know how many marijuana overdoses the patient thought they were having just because they were freaking out? Quite a bit, but they were fine. They were just tripping a little bit. Compare that to alcohol. You know how many alcohol overdoses I've ran on in my career? A crap ton. So marijuana, in my experience as a provider, alcohol tends to be more dangerous than alcohol. Narcotics and opiates, codeine, heroin, morphine, oxycodone, opium, methadone. Opiates are typically prescribed for pain management. They're the good pain drug. Causes drowsiness, lethargy, respiratory depression, constricted pupils, nausea, vomiting. Constipation. Overdoses of opiates can produce coma, respiratory depression, and hypotension, depending on exactly what they're taking. But if they're injecting the opiates, they tend to, they will often have needle track marks. You'll see in their veins where they stuck themselves over and over again. They may be trying to hide it, so we may not see the track marks in their arms, but we see it in their lower extremities on top of their feet in between their toes, et cetera. And Narcan is going to be the treatment for an opiate overdose. Narcan can completely reverse the effects of opiates. Patient may be barely breathing, completely unresponsive. We give them Narcan. Second later, they're awake talking to us, possibly even fighting with us now. Depressants, sedatives, tranquilizers, these are downers. Include alcohol, antihistamines like Benadryl, barbiturates and benzos, Valium, Versed, ketamine, ketamine's not a benzo, Ativan, those are all benzos, Xanax is a benzo, slurred speech, drowsiness, incarnation, impaired thinking, respiratory depression, respiratory circulatory failure, sluggish pupils. Big concern with downers is could cause respiratory depression. And not only that, especially with things like alcohol, if they are addicted to it and they are deprived of it and they go through withdrawals, the sudden withdrawal of these drugs can be lethal for the patient. And we'll talk about specifically alcohol withdrawals coming up. Hallucinogens, 
DET, DMT, LSD, mescaline, PCP, STP, motor disturbances, anxiety, paranoia, delusions, illusions, hallucinations, poor perception of time and distance, psychosis, flashback, rage, and violence. With these type of drugs, the biggest problem, significant danger is going to be a bad trip where they're just, they're thinking they are Superman, thinking they can fly, so they jump off a 12-story building, seeing if they can, and they don't. So the bad trip is a big concern with hallucinogens. Inhalants, aerosol, propellants, gasoline, kerosene, glues, lighter fluid, correction fluids, anesthetics, propane, Tulane, cause excitement, euphoria, giddiness, loss of ambition, aggressiveness, delusions, drowsiness, hallucinations, erratic behavior. Again, inhalants are going to be puffing them. These can produce, uh, result in a sudden sniffing death where they huff and all of a sudden go into cardiac arrest. What causes them to go into cardiac arrest? Don't really know. It's not completely understood why that occurs. But if they are huffing, trying to keep that patient calm is going to be important. That's going to be true for anything. If the patient's getting agitated and upset, we need to do what we can to try to get them to calm down. Habitual alcohol abusers. Alcohol is the central nervous system depressant, de depressant, which in large doses can cause unresponsiveness and death. Not only that, if they are chronic alcoholics, they are also more prone to illnesses and injuries as well. They're oftentimes malnourished. That can, makes them also more prone to items as well. Alcohol intoxication plays a role in MVCs, drug overdoses where they're mixing drugs or they're not following prescription, homicides, drowning, and trauma as well. Okay, we'll go ahead and take a break. So let's be back at uh, 10.55 and then we'll finish up the morning session. So 10.55. Our assessment-based approach for drug and alcohol emergencies. We're gonna start with our scene size up. Scene safety is gonna be important. Some of the patients may be dangerous. A lot of times they may, if it's illegal drugs, they are engaging in illegal behavior so they may be dangerous trying to avoid getting in trouble for using those drugs. If any doubt, go ahead and retreat. Wait for the scene to be secured by law enforcement. Wait for law enforcement to tell you that it's clear for you to approach and then approach the scene. Moving on to our primary assessment, we go through our ABCs, aggressive airway management as indicated, maintaining O2 sats at or above 94%. And just like with most of the other toxins that we've talked about today, vast majority of drugs, it's going to be supportive measures are about all we're going to be able to do, with the exception of opiates. Secondary survey, history, physical, uh, vital signs, physical exam, as indicated to do so. If the patient presents with any of these signs and symptoms, then the patient is going to be a high priority for transport. If they are unresponsive or they are seizing or previously seized prior to our arrival, 
if they're not breathing adequately on their own, if they're showing indications of a fever, alcohol withdrawal can produce a fever, abnormal heart rates, vomiting with altered mental status, or they're having chest pain. Again, those are all going to make them high priority for transport. Signs symptoms of central nervous uh, system stimulants. So these are the uppers. Patients can present with dilated pupils, dry mouth, sweating, loss of appetite, sleep, tachycardia, tachypnea, hypertension, elevated bottle signs. With uppers, they have elevated bottle signs. Excitability, <clears throat> agitation, may be uncooperative as well, may be violent as well. Depressants, on the other hand, they may have euphoria, drowsiness, sleepy, sleepiness. Downers are going to lower bottle signs, so bradycardia, slow heart rate, hypotension, low blood pressure, decreased breathing rates and volumes. These patients may need to be ventilated because they're not breathing adequately on their own. Dilated pupils that are sluggish to respond to light. Narcotic use or opiate use, bradycardia, hypotension, respiratory depression, bradypnea. And again, that's often what's going to be lethal for opiate overdoses is they slows their breathing down. Cool, clammy skin. Constricted or pinpoint pupils, or pupils are extremely small. Again, depending on what opiate they're abusing, if they're shooting it up, they may have needle track marks, lethargy, and nausea as well. There's an example of needle track marks on the extremities, sign that the patient's been injecting drugs. Again, you can just see multiple bruising up and down those veins on his arm. Hallucinogens, dilated pupils, paranoia, anxiety, motor disturbances, tachycardia, flushed faces, visual or auditory hallucinations, poor perception of time and distance as well. Signs of huffers, volatile inhalants, headache, nausea, vomiting, aggressiveness or depression, excitement, euphoria, drunkenness appearance, can have very erratic blood pressures and pulse rates. And oftentimes we'll see swollen membranes of the nose and mouth from them constantly inhaling that, in, uh, that irritant. Care for drug and alcohol emergencies. Again, scene safety is going to be your priority. A lot of these patients may be in a violent situation. So again, our safety is going to be most important. Closely monitor the patients. Changes can occur rapidly. Do what we can. Talk to the patients. Try to calm the patient down. Protect themselves from injuring themselves. And we need to remain non-judgmental with the patient as well. 
Establish and maintain airway, adequate ventilations, again, primary assessment, monitor for emesis, the need for suctioning. Supplemental O2 to maintain O2 sats at or above 94% unless the patient was huffing. If the patient was huffing, that's an inhaled poison. High flow O2, non-rebreather 15 liters per minute regardless of O2 sats. Proper position the patient to help maintain airway. If they're conscious, it's going to be a position of comfort. Unconscious may could possibly put them in the uh, recovery position if we're worried about airway protection. Take steps to maintain body temperature. Make sure their, their temp is relatively normal. They're not getting hypothermic. Go ahead and check their BGL. Even if they've been taking drugs, if they're having altered mental status like we've talked about previously, any altered mental status, we need to go ahead and check their BGLs. If we have to restrain the patient, we only restrain the patient if it's necessary to do so. We can only restrain a patient if they're an immediate threat to themselves or others. So if they're cooperating with us, we're not going to restrain them. And if we suspect an opiate overdose, then we can treat it with Narcan. I'm sorry, reassess frequently. If we do suspect an opiate overdose, we can treat it with Narcan, if allowed to do so by protocols. Violent drug or alcohol abuser. Drug and alcohol abuse can lead to unpredictable violent behavior. So that's safety is still going to be the most important as aspect. Our safety first, other first responders safety second, patient third, bystanders last. Maintaining a calm professional demeanor and voice is paramount. We have to show that we are in control of the scene, but we have to remain calm and professional as well. We can use what's known as the talk-down technique. Technique is used to help decompress a potentially hostile situation. We need to take steps, try to make the patient feel welcome, let them know that we are here to help them, that we are not the police, we're not here to arrest them or to get them in trouble. We're just worried about their safety. Identify yourself clearly, only using like your first name. Try to be personable with the patient. And if they're freaking out because of the drugs that they're taking, talk to them, try to reassure them that the condition is caused by the drug and that this will not last forever. As that medicine or that drug kind of wears off, they will start going back to normal. Help the patient verbalize what is happening to him or her, review, ask questions, et cetera. Try to have them describe what they're feeling, et cetera. Reiterate simple and concrete statements. Repeat and confirm what the patient says and reorient, reorient the patient to his or her surroundings as well. Again, we're just going to try to de-escalate. Talk to them. Let them know, hey, the reason you're feeling like this is that drug. As soon as that drug starts wearing off, you'll start feeling better. We'll warn the patient what will happen as the drug wear, wears off if we know. Uh, let the patient know that confusion and disorientation is due to the drug. Transport patients as soon as the patient becomes calm enough, cooperative enough to allow us to take them. And we don't really want to use the 
talk down technique for victims of uh, hallucinogens. That's what it says. We're still going to talk to the patient. Just need to be aware that hallucinogens, paranoia typically goes hand in hand with that. So they're probably not going to believe anything we're telling them if they're on a hallucinogen. Reassessment, closely monitor the patient. Again, these may, they may engage in unpredictable behavior, so do not leave the patient alone. Leave them alone by themselves. Don't turn your back to him or her. Again, they may use that opportunity to attack you. Monitor changes in mental status, mood, as well as medical monitoring. Transport the patient to the hospital. And we can consider ALS if indicated to do so. Again, supportive measures are all we're going to be able to do, unless it's an opiate. Explain who you are. Maintain a non-judgmental attitude with the patient. So specific substance abuse considerations. Drug withdrawal. Some more terminology. Patients can build up a tolerance to medications. Tolerance where larger doses are required to produce the same effects. Everybody's probably experienced tolerances, those that are over the age of 21 and is able to drink alcohol. When you first, first time you drank alcohol and got drunk, it probably didn't take a much, much alcohol to get you drunk. But the more you how the more frequently you started drinking, now it takes more and more doses or more drinks to get you drunk. Same thing is true with other drugs. First time somebody shoots up heroin, it's not going to take very much heroin to get them extremely high. The next few times they take it, they start building up that tolerances, and now they have to inject more and more heroin to get and feel that initial high that they felt on that first dose. So they're kind of always chasing that first high that they had. They build up a tolerance. Again, that causes them to increase the dose to try to achieve the same effects, especially with things like uh, opiates. They keep get increasing that dose until that dose now becomes dangerous. Dependence, patient exhibits a strong need for repeated use of the drug. Their body needs that drug. And there's two types of dependence a patient can suffer. One of them is a psychological dependence where the person is preoccupied with procuring the drug. They're used to that high. They want to feel that high again. So they constantly think about, I need to get high. And then they have a physical dependence where the absence of the drug actually results in physical withdrawal effects in the body. So it's more than just an emotional or psychological dependence, but their body will actually crave and have withdrawal symptoms as well. Physical dependence is typically easier to break than the psychological dependence. Patients can go to rehab and get clean from it and no longer have that physical dependence but they have that psychological dependence that they have to live with. And that's often what causes patients to relapse is the psychological dependence, not the physical dependence. Drugs that produces physical dependence includes narcotics, opiates, sedatives, hypnotics, barbiturates, cocaine. They say marijuana in the book. Withdrawal symptoms. Signs and symptoms typically begin when the next dose is missed and the peak onset is 48 to 72 eight, two hours later. So again, if somebody is a very heavy drinker and they're used to drinking every four hours or so, if they miss a drink that 
next four hours, they may immediately start showing some type of withdrawal symptoms. General signs and symptoms of withdrawal include anxiety, agitation, can even lead to confusion, muscle tremors, profuse sweating, tachycardia, hypertension, abdominal cramping, nausea and vomiting. So the alcoholic syndrome. Syndrome consists of problem drinking and addiction. And there are many forms of alcohol that can be used. Abuse, again, they may drink rubbing alcohol if they can't get drinking alcohol, methanol, et cetera. Not only that, patients can be abused beer. They can abuse hard liquor, wine, or somewhere in between, a mixture. They may also have a dependence on other drugs as well. They drink alcohol, and they also do other drugs as well. Alcoholics may begin drinking early in the day, drink secretly, or go on binges. Again, there's no one definition of an alcoholic. They may be able to function relatively normal have a, and maintain a normal job, but outside of the work, they drink extremely heavily. Or they may drink constantly from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. Absence, stop drinking alcohol can result in withdrawal symptoms. Alcoholics tend to suffer from work and relationship problems. And they are also more prone to injuries and medical conditions related to their alcoholism. And a lot of that can be contributed to their poor diet. They're malnourished, so they're not in the best of health. They're more prone to certain injuries and illnesses. Bones are typically a little weaker. Etc. So alcoholics are prone to high blood pressure, liver problems. That's kind of the big thing with alcoholics or drinks too much. Their livers begin to fail. That liver failure can cause altered mental status, cirrhosis of the liver, causing the liver failure. They're also prone to pancreatitis as well and more prone to cardiac issues. Hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Alcoholics are very prone to upper GI bleeding. We'll talk about GI bleeds uh, next, uh, next class, I believe. Uh, esophageal varices, those can rupture, produce massive bleeding in the esophagus. Bone marrow suppression. Subdural hematomas, bleeding inside the skull, prone to peritonitis or inflammation of the lining of the abdominal cavity, seizures, and they're more prone to fractures as well. Withdrawal symptoms are dose dependent, and the more severe the signs and symptoms of the withdrawal will be. So again, if somebody is an extremely heavy drinker and they stop cold turkey, their withdrawal symptoms are probably going to be more significant than somebody that's still an alcoholic but doesn't drink near as much as the heavy drinker. So withdrawal symptoms can include insomnia, trouble sleeping, seizures, muscle tremors, disorientation, confusion, anorexia, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting. Hyperthermia, elevated core temperature, sweating, 
tachycardia, hypertension, and they can also suffer hallucinations while they are withdrawing as well. And this includes visual, they see things, tactile, they feel things like something's crawling on them, and auditory, they're hearing things as well. So stages of the withdrawal syndrome. Stage one of alcohol withdrawals occurs within eight hours. During this time, the patient typically suffers from nausea, insomnia, sweating, and tremors. Stage two, within eight to 72, they have the same signs and symptoms as stage one, but they're worsening, and now they're also starting to hallucinate. Stage three can occur as early as 48 hours. This patient starts seizing, or uh, major seizures can occur. And then stage four can occur a day up to 14 days after the patient's last drink. And it is in stage four where the patient can start having those delirium tremens or the DTs. So the DTs, you might want to write this one down. It's going to be on your next test. DTs are a severe life-threatening condition that occurs late in the later stages of alcohol withdrawal. So occurs most commonly two to five days after the last drink. Again, can happen up to 15 days after that last drink. And patients that go through the DTs, they have a mortality rate of five to 15%. So it's a pretty high mortality rate. And the DTs can last uh, one to three days. Signs and symptoms. Tremors, restlessness, irritability, severe confusion, loss of memory. They tend to have terrifying hallucinations at this time. Where it really starts becoming dangerous, they have an extremely high fever. Their core temperature increases greatly. Profuse sweating, dilated pupils, and elevated bottle signs as well. Again, the bottle signs and then the fevers, typically where it's going to be very dangerous. So again, DTs, severe life-threatening condition that happens in the later stages of withdrawal. Treatment, ain't nothing we can do for it. It's going to be supportive measures to give to the hospital. But the alcoholism and the dependence is pretty significant, something to worry about. Hospitals in their pharmacy often carries alcohol like beer, like Bud Light, Coors Light, and so forth in their pharmacy. If a patient's going through a major surgery and they're a known alcoholic, they're probably going to give them a little bit of alcohol to keep them from going through the withdrawal symptoms during surgery. I, I've tried. I, I tell them I'm a major alcoholic. I need a, a beer right before the surgery and they want to give it to me. Not, not really, but so opiates. Opiates are natural synthetic, semi-synthetic agents that mimic morphine. They're derived from opium and act on opiate receptors on the body. So we take an opiate, I shoot up heroin. That heroin, those opiates are going to bind to those opiate receptors in the body. 
and I'm going to start having that euphoric feeling and all my bottles are going to start slowing down. Heroin is a type of opiate, is increasing in abuse rates in the United States. We don't, we, when I was at UMCMS, we didn't see a lot of heroin abuse. We did see other things like fentanyl was starting to become extremely popular right towards the end of my career on the ambulance. Fentanyl use is at an epidemic level at some parts of the United States, and you're constantly hearing about the influx of uh, fentanyl coming across the borders on the on news. Some some news stations, anyway. So types of opiates. Morphine, heroin. Again, heroin's kind of the street drug. There is no legitimate medical reason for a patient to be on heroin. Morphine is a medicated drug. Fentanyl is a drug that is has a medical use. Actual high-quality fentanyl that's pure. EMS units, every almost every EMS unit in this region for sure carries fentanyl. It's a very common medical drug. And also have carafentanyl. This is used in veterinary medicine for large, large animals. Signs and symptoms. It's a CNS and a respiratory depressant. So everything is going to slow down. Meiosis is the pinpoint constricted pupils. Again, extremely small pupils is very common with opiate use. Seizures and coordination, hypotension, bradycardia, bradypnea. So all the vital signs are slowing down. Can cause crackles in the lungs as well. And opiates can cause paritis and itching sensation throughout their body, hypoglycemia and hypothermia as well. Again, with opiate abuse, what's likely going to kill them quickly, what we need to identify and correct quickly is going to be the respiratory depression. So treatment for opiate use or overdose. Again, it's going to start off with our primary assessment or ABCs, establish and maintain their way. Maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, which is very likely, we need to ventilate the patient with a BBM. If our protocols allow us to, as soon as we realize it's an opiate overdose, we need to go ahead and administer Narcan or Naloxone as needed if protocol permits. Typical dose of Narcan is two milligrams and it is administered intranasally at the basic level. That's in when we give intranasal medications, we split the dosage in half, squirt half of it up one nostril, the other half of the other nostril. So that's one milligram per nostril. The reason being is remember, it's getting absorbed through the mucosal lining in the nose, in the back of the throat, back of the nose. We're just doubling the space that's available for absorption by cutting it in half. Transport with ALS intercept as needed. So Narcan has a very short half-life, so it is going to wear off probably before the opiates do. So again, we give somebody Narcan, they wake up, don't want to go to the hospital. We really need to encourage them to go to the hospital because it's probably going to wear off. And reassess frequently, again, because it will wear off. So if your Narcan comes in a vial, like in the picture here, we're going to have to draw it out of 
a vial. In this region and most service I've ever been on or been in the back of a truck, Narcan does come in a pre-filled syringe. So it's already in a syringe. We just have to put the pre-fill together. After we get the medication in the syringe, we need to put on the MAD device or the mucosal atomizer device. And then again, we squirt up, squirt half the dose in each nostril. When we push it, push in that medication, we push it in briskly to make sure that it is atomizing. And again, Narcan is one of those drugs where we can have a patient that's completely unresponsive, snoring respirations, breathing six times a minute extremely shallowly. We give that Narcan, give it a couple minutes to work. The next thing we know, the patient is sitting up, conscious, talking to us, breathing absolutely fine on their own. But again, it can wear off and does wear off pretty quickly. May have to be repeated in route. All right, moving on, PCP. There's the actual, what PCP stands for. Other names for it may be angel dust, killer weed, monkey dust, or rocket fuel. It causes dangerous hallucinations. It also produces significant psychological effects, which may last for years. PCP can also be stored in body fat and can be released over time, causing flashbacks. So the patient may not have used PCP in 10 years, but it's stored in their fat. And once their body start, started metabolizing that fat, PCP was released and they started tripping again. Cocaine, the old booger sugar, is a potent stimulant. Maybe smoked. It's the free-based uh, injected or I'm sorry, inhaled, which is free-based, the powder stuff that's snorted, can also be injected or smoked as well. We either typically don't really see it injected too frequently. It's either going to be inhaled, or if it's crack, it's going to be smoked. Crack cocaine is almost a pure form that is smoked. It is highly addictive. They say crack is more addictive than the free-based and overdoses can be cocaine. It's an upper, so it's going to make everything work hard. What typically kills patients from chronic cocaine use is things like heart attacks or heart failure because their heart is getting worn out in that constant use. Amphetamines, methamphetamines, these are potent CS, CNS stimulants or uppers, crank, go, speed, can come in a pill form, can be smoked, injected, or snorted. The crystalline form, which is called ice or crystal, is smoked. That's typically what we see in this region, too, is it's smoked, from my experience. I am no drug expert by any means. Can cause cardiovascular excitation, elevated heart rate, so forth, hallucinations, hyperthermia, and muscle rigidity. PABS, PBS, or bath salts, was a synthetic designer drug. It's a CNS stimulant. While they're called bath salts is because they were sold under the label as bath salts to avoid criminal prosecution. Sold at like smoke shops. They're told they're bath salts, but everybody knew that they were ingesting or taking them in some way, smoking improperly. 
Irie wave, vanilla sky, unpredictable results with each use, and they're designed to mimic cocaine and methamphetamine. But again, they range wildly. There was no consistency to the product. First time I ever heard about bath salts was case in Florida, the guy ingested or took bath salts and then was chasing people down and eating the guy's face off. So again, it makes it act very erratic and be and wild. So we didn't ever really see a problem with bath salts in this region. We did see it in synthetic cannabinoids that we're going to talk about coming up. But they, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. So some signs, sympathetic effects can have tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, seizures, altered mental status, paranoia, panic attacks, agitation, hallucinations, and violent behavior. MDMA or ecstasy. There is why they call it MDMA. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Can be called X, ecstasy, uh, Scooby Snacks or Skittles. It's a psychoactive stimulant causing empathy, euphoria, and heightened sensations. It's common to the rave culture. And overdoses can be, can cause death. Effects, stimulatory effects, the CNS, so it's a kind of an upper has that type of effects. Hyperthermia, tachycardia, hypertension, pupil dilation, memory impairment, and overdoses of ecstasy can cause intracranial hemorrhage, brain bleeds, and death. So general signs and symptoms of stimulants, profound CNS stimulatory findings, Involuntary eye movements cause seizures, cardiovascular and respiratory emergencies, and intracranial hemorrhage as well. Blood pressure just gets so high that it weakens those vessels, those small, weak vessels, thus. So if we are dealing with a patient of abused stimulants, treatment-wise, supportive measures, all we're going to be able to do. Text yourself the crew. Don't turn your back on the patient. Don't leave the patient alone. Manage the ABCs as indicated based on patient presentation. Keep the patient in a quiet, non-stimulating environment. Check for injuries. They may have a traumatic injury, but since they're so amped, they may not even realize that they're hurt. So try to assess them if possible. We can do so safely. Other than that, manages other overdoses. So it's, again, primarily going to be supportive measures. Nothing much we can do. Keep an eye on them, get them to the hospital. THC, it's the principal psychoactive substance in cannabis. Causes feelings of euphoria. Can be smoked, can be put into a vape, eaten, or used as an extract. It has limited medical applications, and the limited medical applications is constantly growing. It is still a class one, or I think that's what they call it, uh, DA recognizes it as a class one drug, means there is no medical benefit to it, according to the federal government. 
but a lot of states are realizing there is a lot of medical benefit to marijuana. It's legalized in several U.S. states. That number is continuing to grow. It's either legalized or decriminalized in a bunch of different states. Texas, not too long ago, did move to allow at least medical marijuana under very strict circumstances, but at least you can see patients on that uh, in Texas now. Common findings of THC use include decrease in short-term memory, dry mouth, tachycardia, drop in blood pressure, and reddening of the eyes. Synthetic cannabinoids. Again, we did have a huge problem with this in, in Lubbock for a little while. So they're supposed to be chemically similar to THC or cannabis. They affect the brain more powerfully than marijuana. Very unpredictable responses can result in very bizarre and dangerous behavior and can induce seizures. Uh, in Lubbock, they were often documented or they were, uh, were sold under as incense. They said not for human consumption on the package, but everybody knew what they were doing with it. And it was bad there for a while until the DA stepped in and started sh shutting down smoke shops that were selling it. So with THC, you can have cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And all this is, is recurring nausea, vomiting, and pain, uh, abdominal pain and cramping from heavy uh, weed use. Acute episodes can last 24 to 48 hours. Not completely understood, but they thought it was to be a result of a buildup of cannabinoids in the body. So in order to suffer from this, you had to be a very heavy user of marijuana. So the criteria that has to be met in order for a patient to, to have this diagnosis, they have to be a long-term cannabis user, have severe nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, cyclic vomiting that kind of comes in cycles, that the symptoms would actually get better if the patient took a hot bath or shower, and if the patient would stop using marijuana, signs and symptoms would go away. Treatment for it, anything we do for it, it's going to be treated like we would any other patient with nausea or vomiting. So medication overdoses. An overdose may be intentional or accidental. And if they're mixing medications, they can have that synergistic reaction can occur from the interaction of medications, where that synergistic reaction is just those two medications bind or work together to produce a very dramatic type of result. And many patients do not realize the severity of mixing medications. That's why it's important that you do have a primary care physician that knows what prescriptions you were on to ensure that they are not prescribing drugs that aren't supposed to be prescribed together. It's also why you really need to use the same pharmacy over and over again to get your prescriptions filled. Because if the doctor doesn't catch it, your pharmacist should catch it. If you're prescribed multiple medications that should not be taken together. Commonly, uh, medications that are commonly involved in overdoses include cardiac medications, psych medications, 
again, sorry, over-the-counter pain relievers like Tylenol, antihistamines, herbal remedies, and dietary supplements as well. Puffing is an inhaled poison with the intention of getting high. Common things people huff, products that contain tuline, paints, glue, spray paints are probably the most common ones that I've come across. Gas propellants, Freon, even huffing gasoline fumes. And remember, they're displacing oxygen, so hypoxia is going to be a big concern. And these patients can also get that sudden cardiac arrest, that sudden um, sniffing death or whatever it was called, uh, is the greatest concern. So it's huffing, it's an inhaled poisoning, high flow O2, non-reverted 15 liters per minute, regardless of O2 sets. And other than that, it's going to be supportive measures. I ran on a patient that was a huffer. It was the middle of winter. He, I mean, he had pain all over his jacket, all over his fingernails, fingertips, and around his face. Couldn't afford the paint no more, so he just walked right up into Walmart with his paper bag and started huffing the paint and paint out. So, again, these patients can get pretty desperate. Poison staining in the body through ingestion, inhalation, injection, or absorption. Ingestion is the most common route of poisoning. Few antidotes are available. The vast majority of the time, though, we are going to treat the patient with the assumption there's not going to be an antidote. Narcan is an antidote. Uh, activated charcoal, though, is not considered an antidote. It's preventing the absorption of the medication or drug through the small intestine. Care for poisoned patients, again, is going to be largely supportive. Making sure those ABCs are okay transporting the patient to the hospital. Again, with opiate overdoses, we can treat with Narcan if your protocols allow. Scene safety is gonna be a big concern, especially with the use of illegal drugs, et cetera. Identify the substance. If possible, transport it with us to the hospital. 